when I read that, I was like, how much pressure was that? <laughs> Jesus, your big brother? How many times did you have to hear, why come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because <laughs> you know, everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do, but he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. Remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody was amazed, but they don't tell you about the next banquet. Jesus left early. They started running out of wine. Everybody looked at James. It's like, man, last time this happened, your brother made some wine, dude. You, you just gonna stand there with your sandals on? You're not gonna... Can you make some Kool-Aid or something, man? You're not gonna do anything? You know James had problems just like any other kid had problems. He would try to follow his big brother around. So everywhere Jesus went, James followed him. That's what little brothers do. So if Jesus went there, so did James. I bet one time, James almost drowned. <laughs> oh, you just got that joke just now, didn't you? Jesus walked on water and James tried to just me. I'm sure James had problems. He would go to his parents with his problems. And his parents, especially his, his mom, was trying to throw him a bone once in a while. They'd pray over their food. They're like, Lord, we just thank you for this food in James' name. James had problems. He would go to his parents with his problems, and you know what they would say? He'd be like, well, what would Jesus do, you know? <laughs> then they gave him a bracelet. They gave him a bracelet, and um, <laughs> then he started selling those bracelets, you know? <laughs> Made some money selling bracelets. What would be cool is a what would James do bracelet, right? Same initials, different meaning. Completely different meaning. You're driving down the street, you get cut off in traffic. You fuss them out, your pastor's gonna be like, yo, you gotta, what would Jesus do bracing on? You're like, uh uh, that's what would James do. <laughs> driving an imaginary car for a long time, isn't he? Also found out when Jesus was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. They lost Jesus. And you know the first thing they had to do was pray. I wonder what that prayer must have sounded like. Joseph probably did the prayer. He was like, oh God. <laughs> Dear God, um, oh forgiving God. Um, you remember that Messiah you gave us? You got another one somewhere, man? We don't... That was the only begotten son? Okay, we're going to find him. We're going to find him. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. Do you think Jesus' family had problems? <laughs> we know. We actually know that he did. Uh, in fact, that passage that we read from Matthew chapter 12 
shows us that Jesus' family had problems because, you know, Jesus is out there and he's speaking and his family is not inside listening, even though obviously at least his mother knows that, that he is the Messiah, uh, but his mom is not sitting there listening to him. They're standing on the outside and they're trying to get his attention and it seems like they're trying to make some sort of claim on Jesus as if they own him or because they are part of his family that then he that they have some sort of right to interrupt what he's doing right and then what happens after that jesus kind of takes a shot at his family doesn't he he says hey i'll tell you who my real family is and he looks at his disciples and he says here's my mother here's my brothers right here anyone who does the will of my father in heaven it's kind of strange to think of but Jesus' family had problems. And this is actually isn't the only account of it. In John chapter 7, uh, it says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. And so in that part, they, they kind of mocked him even, saying, hey, why don't you go do miracles in Jerusalem, and then you can be really popular, okay? which you can understand, right? I mean, would you believe it if your brother or your sister claimed to be the son of God or the daughter of God or the savior of the world? You know, I think probably you would have some problems as well. Why is that? Well, because that's family. That's what families do. Family plays a critical role in our lives. And in fact, a good family can be a blessing, can give you a head start in life. But a dysfunctional family can uh, give us emotional and financial and other kind of hurdles to overcome for the rest of our lives. Now, Christians, I think because of this very fact, put a huge emphasis on the family. In fact, it's the focus on things like family values that are very much the reason why so many Christians are maligned in our culture today. We preach that keeping families together is the best way for a person or a neighborhood or a country to be able to thrive. Okay, but there are many people in our society today who say this view is, is out of line because it's 2019 and we're beyond that. That's, that's backwards kinds of thinking. Focusing on family values is cruel to people who don't have those kinds of families. But despite this critique, the fact of it is still true that the best way for a society to flourish is for it to promote healthy families. The question is, is it possible to take it too far? And that's the question that I want to explore today. We are in the middle of this series that we are calling Where's the Good News? And what we're doing is we're looking at various cultural gospels that our society believes in. They're, they're ones that, are, that, that we're tempted to believe will make us happy and fulfilled, that are sort of the answer to all of the problems of the world. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at the gospel of science and technology. We've looked at the prosperity gospel. We've looked at the gospel according to Hugh Hefner. And all of these are various gospels that our society believes will, will solve the world's problems. And today, we're talking about the gospel of marriage and family. Now, notice that all of these things that we're talking about can be good things in and of themselves. Uh, science and technology can be good things. Prosperity can be a good thing. Sex is a good thing. All of them can be good, but they can also become gospels for us when they start to compete with Jesus and believe that they will solve all of our problems. In fact, this is what um, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller says, is an idol. He says, it's when we take good things and we make them into ultimate things. And I believe that this can happen even with something as great as families. 
Now, there are many people today, not just Christians, who put their faith in the gospel of marriage and family. And it's this gospel that says that family should be our number one priority and, uh, and that it should be protected above everything else. Uh, if <coughs> it says that if you don't get married, then you won't be complete. This kind of gospel causes parents to run themselves ragged and trying to give their kids everything they could possibly ever want and make them involved in every activity. It's this gospel that convinces us that if our kids don't turn out the way we planned, then God will be disappointed with us. And this is not a uniquely Christian thing today, but it is prominent in, in churches. In some churches, the idea is so prominent that I suspect that protecting family values would be much more important to many of the people than making disciples. The question is, is this what we should be about? Should this be the most important thing? And if we are, is there a danger in doing things this way? Well, to answer the question today, I want to take a walk through Scripture. There aren't many scripture passages, like singular passages, that will tell, tell us everything that we need to know about family. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a survey, and we're going to look at five different things that the Bible says about families. And so we'll start by going right to the beginning, right where family was established in the book of Genesis. We're going to take a look at the first family, and we're not talking about the Trumps, we're talking about Adam and Eve, okay? <clears throat> in Genesis... It tells us the first thing that we need to know about family, and it's this, is that God created the family to promote human flourishing. God created the family to promote human flourishing, okay? And what you'll see here is, is that the basic unit of a society is not the individual, it's the family. But as we look at it, we'll also notice that God did not create the family just for the individual family's sake. So for instance, we look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, the, the picture we get here um, in a poetic form is that God made creation and he ordered it the way he wanted it. Okay, the first uh, five days were that. And then God created humans as caretakers to bring about the flourishing of creation. In fact, that's a big part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are co-creators, we are co-rulers with God. Okay, and that's great, but you have to understand that we can do that as individuals, but it's not just as individuals. Okay, it's a family thing, because if you look at the end of verse 27, he adds this qualifier, okay? In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, and so here's where we have the foundation of the family, male and female. And then God immediately goes and he gives them a task. This is the first thing that God tells people to do. God blessed them and he said to them, this is verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, so it starts with male and female as the foundation of the family, and he gives them two commands. Number one, fill the earth. Number two, subdue it. Now, of course, filling the earth means go make babies, right? Um, in other words, God tells them, you need to populate the earth because the earth is a big place, and we're going to need more than just you two, just Adam and Eve, to be able to take care of it. 
Okay? And then as they fill the earth, the purpose of filling that earth is to subdue it. Now, a lot of people will look at that word and say, well, of course, that means exploit it, that we can use it for whatever we want, but actually that's not what it means. Subdue means to order it to bring about flourishing. Okay? So uh, that doesn't mean to exploit it. it. It means, you know, and it includes human, to bring out the flourishing of humans, but it's not just limited to humanity. We are called to take care of the earth, okay? And so the first thing you need to notice is, is that families don't exist just for themselves, but families have a greater purpose to bring about the flourishing of creation, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing we see in Scripture is that oftentimes, instead of flourishing, family is the carrier of generational sin and dysfunction, okay? See it all over the pages of Scripture. In fact, after creation... Pretty much immediately, the Bible does not paint a very flattering picture of what it means to be a part of a family. It almost makes you want to give up, right? Because we have the first family, uh, the first brother, for instance, okay? The first older brother, what does he do? He kills his younger brother. And then it goes downhill from there. In fact, it gets so bad that God says, I'm going to start over. Um, So we have the flood. He saves Noah and saves his family, and, and then he makes a new covenant. In fact, it's the, about the same covenant that he makes with Adam and Eve. Now, fill the earth and, and subdue it. Take care of the earth. And what happens immediately? Noah, the ultra-righteous Noah, gets drunk, uh, passes out in a tent, and some weird thing happens with his sons. A lot of people say that there's some weird sexual thing that goes on that he's shamed, and he ends up cursing his sons, right? Okay, so that's another great family. Okay, then we get to the story of Abraham who God forms a covenant with, and he says, I'm going to give you a huge family, a a gigantic family that is going to carry my blessing into the world. And and again, notice, I'm going to create a family, and you have a purpose. And after, so then, after that, then Abraham goes to Egypt, and he, uh, he's afraid of the Egyptians because he has this wife, Sarah, and she is really hot. I mean, she's really good looking, and he knows that if he goes in there, then the Egyptians are going to start asking about her. Hey, what, what's with her? Is she with you? What's going on? You know? And, and, and he thinks that if he tells them that she's his wife, that they'll kill him and take her. And so he says, just tell them you're my sister. Right? And, uh, and so he lies about that. You know, and then that creates all kinds of problems. And finally, they get out of there. And, uh, and then they leave Egypt, Abraham and his whole clan. And immediately what happens, his, uh, his people and his nephew Lot's people get into a fight and they have to part ways, right? Okay, this is, this is family life right here, okay, in the Bible. Okay, then what happens? Well, God makes the covenant with Abraham, tells him he'll be a great nation, and that he and his wife Sarah are going to have kids, Right? But then what happens? They don't. And, and over time, they get tired of waiting for God. And so what happens? Sarah gets a girlfriend for Abraham and says, have a kid with her. Let's, let's take this into our own hands. And, and of course, he has a baby, baby with Hagar, names him Ishmael. And then things get kind of weird, imagine that. And, and Sarah gets mad at Hagar and sends both Hagar and Ishmael away. Just says, all right, you're out of here. Okay, this is family. And then, you know, they wait for decades. Finally, in their 90s, Isaac is born. Isaac grows up, and he has a family, and his family is messed up too. He has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older one, and he's very short-sighted and very naive. Uh, Jacob, who was his mom's favorite, 
decides that he's going to steal the birthright, the family blessing, from Esau. And so with the help of his mom, he steals that. And, uh, of course, this doesn't make Esau very happy. And what does he do? He wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob (laughs) runs away. And where does he stay? He finds his uncle Laban. Once again, goes to family. And then what happens there? Well, he sees Laban's daughter and says, hey, Rachel, she's, she's pretty good looking, and says to Laban, hey, can I have her? Can I marry her? He says, well, you got to work for me for seven years. And so he does, but then what happens? Seven years later, uh, Laban actually gives Leah to Jacob, who is apparently not quite as good looking as Rachel, uh, but Laban says, hey, that's just not the way we do it here. We always marry off the older one first, but if you work another seven years then you can have Rachel too, and he does. And Rachel, after he marries her, is his favorite. And of course, Leah sees this and is jealous about that. And so the two of them get into a baby-making contest, right? And, uh, and not only that, but just like Sarah did with Abraham, at one point, both of them end up giving Jacob uh, a servant to have babies with, all right? So Jacob ends up with 12 sons, and Joseph is Jacob's favorite, so again, they're playing favorites, and so he gives them this sweet favorite sun coat, right, a technicolor dream coat, and, and so the other brothers get jealous, and what happens? They want to kill him, but then they have mercy on him, and rather than kill him, they only sell him into slavery, you know, and they tell their dad that he was like a wild animal, okay? So, okay, so this is, this is family in the Bible, all right, and you thought your family was messed up, okay? I mean... It just goes on and on, and that's just Genesis, right? Okay, so here's the point. Families are really effective at passing down traits from generation to generation, really effective at doing that, okay? But we, you know, we don't need Scripture to tell us that. We know it. Of course, it's true biologically, so I brought some evidence of that. Okay, here's a, here's a picture of me up there, all right? That's me. And <coughs> I contacted my dad this week. I said, Dad, could you send me a selfie? And then if you could find a picture of Grandpa, that would be great too. And he texted me back and he said, oh, this doesn't sound good. <laughs> and I said, well, it just depends on how you feel about your face. And, uh, and so uh, this is a picture of my dad, all right? So you might see some resemblance there, the eyes, all right? And then I got a picture of my Grandpa, all right? Um, there's a few things that you can see, some similarities there. Uh, none of us show our teeth when we smile, right? So that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing that, that you'll notice about the Klein saucers is we tend to have round heads. And as we get older, our heads get rounder. And so you can kind of see the progression there. Uh, uh, my son, Duncan, I've got him too. So there's four generations. His head has not quite filled out yet. But, uh, but he'll get there. I mean, he'll, he'll be over here at, uh, at some point, you know? So we, uh, we pass down these, these physical traits, and my guess is, is that you guys could do this same thing with your parents and your kids, and there would be a lot of similarities that you see there. And so we know just from experience that families pass down traits from generation to generation. And this is true for facial features, but it's true for all kinds of other things as well. Why, when you go to the doctor, do they ask about your medical history? And the reason is, is because some of those medical traits are passed down from generation to generation, and and many of those things can be indicators for the medical problems that you'll face as you get older, things like heart disease, cancer, even mental illness, 
in, in one way or another, to one degree or another, is hereditary. And so a lot of these things get passed along. But it's not just physical, biological things. It's also family patterns, behavioral patterns, things like alcoholism, divorce, child abuse, poverty. Okay? All of those things you can usually trace down through family lines. Um, but it's not just bad things either. If your parents have been married for 50 or 60 years, the likelihood that you will be married for the rest of your life for 50 or 60 years goes skyrocketing there. If you are a part of a family that followed Jesus faithfully and was generous and gracious and forgiving, then it's more likely that you will be too. So you do pass down those things from generation to generation. And chances are you, as much as you hate to admit it, are like your parents, and the older you get, the more like them you will become. Okay, I don't know if, you, uh, if you've seen Everyone, these, welcome. But, uh, but this is a good illustration of it. Stasis support group, got some new friends this week. Welcome, good to see you, I'm Rick, I'm the group leader. What we'd like to do here is start with our mantra. We are not our dads. We are not our dads. Jim, why don't we start with you this week? Well, yeah, like uh, most of you, um, we just bought a house. Oh, very nice. And yeah, now I'm turning into my dad. I text him full sentences. I refer to every child as chief. This hat was free. What am I supposed to do, not wear it? Next thing you know, I'm telling strangers defense wins championships. Well, it does. Right? Why is the door open? Are we trying to air condition the whole neighborhood? Heck, now I'm the guy who gets up at five just to tell people I'm up at five. I woke up at four. Well, that's not one up. No one wins with a one up, okay? You see how he let the dadness overtake him? Uh, Jim, go ahead. Yeah, you know, at least it's not totally hopeless. I bundled home and auto on the internet with Progressive. Yeah. Oh, nice. yeah. And I know what a meanie is now. Hey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of them are funny. Some, you know, some, some, are, some of them are, oh. But oh, other yeah. ones are funny. Oh. Yeah. I think it's a meme. Is it? I don't think it is. No, I think it's Mimi, because it's two me's. Spelt me, me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Meme. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. I mean, why replace this? It's not broken. Works great. Have you seen these commercials before? They've got, they've got a bunch of them, and they're, they're absolutely hilarious, okay? So if you're a parent, you give your kids the, the lens that they will see the world through, okay? That's the lens that they'll view life through. Even if, they, even if they rebel against it eventually, they're still looking at life through that same lens. And so if you are angry and unforgiving, then your kids will absorb that. If you are uh, kind and caring, your kids will see that, and they will be more likely to emulate that as they get older. Okay? If you value money above all else, then they will pick up that trait as well. If your relationship with God is not that important to you, or if you act one way in public and another way in private, they see that, and they pick up on it. I know that's a lot of pressure, but that's the way it is. Nothing I can do about it, okay? The reason family is so critical is because it's the greatest determining factor in our lives for success or failure or sin or righteousness. Family is huge. Third, <clears throat> family can be the source of great joy and support or pain and struggle. Some of the best memories and the greatest joys that I have in my life 
um, come from my family. I love, my kids are, are growing up. My youngest is 17 now, and I love to see them grow up. I love to see what they're becoming and the character that they have and the choices that they make, even how they work through adversity. I'm, I'm proud of them and, uh, and, and really, you know, happy that they're my kids. Um, we're at the point where they're starting to move out of the house and starting to, you know, live their own lives, and that's really cool. But sometimes I actually miss the days when our kids were younger, okay? Any, any of you feel that way? Any of you who have grown-up kids, you kind of remember when they're, when they're younger and some of the great memories that you have. You know, we, <clears throat> when we lived in Iowa, we would take, I had a pickup truck, and we would take that pickup truck to Dairy Queen, and we would open the tailgate and sit in the back and, and eat ice cream, and it's dripping all over the place, but it was okay because we were in the back of a pickup truck. And, uh, you know, it's just little things like there's, there's something about a family. There's a love that happens within a family that's hard to reproduce anywhere else. But one of the things that I think we don't talk about enough in churches is the fact that for some people, family just doesn't happen like that. See, when you talk about family with them, it doesn't bring images of joy and nostalgia. It brings images of pain and regret and hurt. For instance... We always want to be very sensitive on Mother's Day. Mother's Day was just a couple weeks ago, right? Because for some, while for some, Mother's Day is a reminder of the joy of children, at the same time for others, it is a painful reminder that even though they desperately want to have children, for some reason they're not able to. Maybe they're single and... Um, you know, have kind of given up on the idea that they'll ever be married and have a family, or maybe struggling with infertility. You know, they've tried and they can't for some reason. And I have to tell you, it's, it's a devastating thing. If you've gone through it or if you know someone who has, you know it's absolutely devastating. And, and we see even how painful it can be in Scripture, uh, from couples from Abraham and Sarah to Jacob and Rachel to Elkanah and Hannah. In fact, in the book of 1 Samuel, it tells the story of Hannah who year after year would watch as all of these other women were going to the temple and she would see them having children after children after children and she had none. And it says that she went to, the, went to pray at the temple and this is how it describes her prayer, in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. Now, if you've struggled with it or if you've been close to that, you know that this is not an exaggerated picture, that this is absolutely what it's like. It can be absolutely agonizing. And I think sometimes in the church's efforts to promote family for the flourishing of society, we also have to be sensitive to people for whom family is not a source of joy, but a source of pain. For couples struggling with infertility, for people who, when you talk about God as a heavenly father, they have a hard time with that. They have a hard time identifying with that. It doesn't bring up a good image for them. For people who have been in abusive relationships either as a child or as a spouse, for people who have lost a loved one prematurely. Okay? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to uphold the family and support families and advocate for families, but we have to be sensitive to the fact that some people just don't experience that in their lives. That brings us to our fourth point, and it's this. Is that your family can serve the kingdom or it can be an excuse for not getting involved. Our New Testament passage today was from Matthew chapter 12. We talked about it briefly. Jesus was speaking to a crowd. 
And, uh, and his family was asking to speak to him, trying to actually interrupt him. From the context of the passage, it seems like that's what they were doing. They were trying to sort of assert their relationship with him as a reason for them to be able to, for him to stop what he's doing and to, and to talk to them. They had something that apparently was so urgent that they just needed to talk to him. And, and so they thought that family, just because their family should take precedent over what he was doing, simply because they're his family. And, and when we read the passage, our natural instinct, when we hear the way Jesus replies, is to say, wow, Jesus was really rude there. Okay? Now, if you subscribe to the gospel of marriage and family, and that's what you see when you read Scripture, then this will be a big surprise. But it really shouldn't be a surprise because Jesus was very consistent in this. For instance, in the book of Mark, Jesus is calling people to be his disciples, and one of them says, I'll follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And what does Jesus say? He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Then we get to Luke chapter 14, and, and Jesus tells the parable of the banquet, where people are invited to this great banquet, and initially, everyone says, yeah, I'd love to come to the banquet, but then when the banquet is ready and the time comes, um, and the servants go out and start to say, hey, why don't you come on in? The time has come. It, Jesus says they start to make excuses, and they make three excuses. One of them is, I just got married, so I can't come. Jesus has no patience for that excuse. Now, the interpretation of the parable is, is that the great, rep, great banquet represents the kingdom of God, and everyone is invited to participate in it. But people start making excuses for why they can't, and clearly for Jesus, family can be one of the reasons why people don't fully participate in the kingdom of God. And the sad thing is, is we don't even realize we're doing it. And that's why he explains later in the chapter, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying we should actually hate our family, but he's saying that our loyalty to our family should pale in comparison to our love for him and our dedication to his kingdom. And yet we often put so much emphasis on family that Christians Think nothing of elevating family over the kingdom of God. Okay, think about these examples. I was youth pastor for about seven years when I was in Iowa. And I would see families disappear from church for long periods of time, for entire series, uh, seasons of life, uh, because they had a child that was involved in sports that took them away every weekend. There are some families who never reach out to an unmarried person after church or invite them over for Thanksgiving or Christmas because that's family time. There are some people who don't get involved in a ministry or wouldn't take someone into their home because it might change their family dynamics. Okay? I read a piece by one young mom who was convicted when she was driving uh, down the road with her two kids in the car and saw an elderly lady who was on the sidewalk walking with two grocery bags. And, uh, and she wrote this, she said, since we were going pretty slow, I had a good 30 seconds to make a decision. She clearly needed a ride, but I had my three-year-old and one-year-old in the car with me. And I started to think, what if she's dangerous? What if that's not really milk in her bag, but a bomb? What if she's pretending to walk with a limp, but she's actually a 25-year-old man in disguise? I have kids in the car, and my kid's safety always comes first. I passed her. 
I passed an 80-year-old woman with a limp carrying two bags of groceries because of my kids. Now, like I said, she immediately felt convicted about it, and so she turned around and went back and picked up the woman. And as she reflected back on the situation, she started to think about it, and this was her conclusion. She said, that was the first time I realized what my idol is. I loved my kids more than I loved Jesus, more than I loved bringing his kingdom down to this earth. Now, I don't say that to make you feel guilty, because I've done it, and I'm pretty sure you've done something similar to that as well. But I say that because I want to help you think biblically about family. Okay? Your family should never be a hindrance to your ministry, but you should bring your family into your ministry with you. See, it's not just that the church is here to serve family, but your family serves the church. Your family serves the kingdom of God. And I wonder how many of us, when we hear about something like Together for Good, where we can host kids who don't have any other place to go, we think that sounds like a great ministry, but I don't think we could do it because of our kids. When we decided to be foster parents, for instance, that was a consideration. Yeah, we have kids at home. What's that going to do to our family dynamic? And it's something that we wrestled with. And it's real. But ultimately, what is the purpose of my family? See, when you serve, your kids learn to serve. When you give and you invite your kids into that, then your kids learn to give. When you invite someone into your home who would otherwise spend a holiday alone over to your house for Christmas, then you show them that family doesn't limit you from serving, but that's actually the strength of a family. And if you're a parent, then you're in charge of what the family does. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what do the decisions that I make say about what I value most? The final thing that we see in Scripture is that the Bible shows us that the most important family is the family of God. Do you believe that? I mean, isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 12? Who are my brothers and sisters? Who is my mother? Okay, it's those who do the will of God. That's the family of God. Now, throughout the New Testament, <coughs> the church is called the family of God. And um, people refer to each other. Even today, sometimes in churches, we refer to each other as brother and sister. Okay, why is that? Okay, now, follow me here. We said from the beginning, God created family as the source of human flourishing. And some families do this really well. Some families are really messed up. And usually, even families that are, are intact and seem to be doing pretty well in the society don't have this vision of bringing about the flourishing of society, okay? In other words, biological families are not the hope of the world. But the Christian gospel says that Jesus is the hope of the world, that through his life and death and resurrection that we are forgiven for our sins, and because of that, we have the hope of eternal life. But what we oftentimes gloss over about the gospel is that Jesus didn't just die so that individuals can go to heaven eventually. Part of what he came to do was to create a new family. John 1, 12 and 13 says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1.5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Okay? And so that means, of course, three things. Number one, that in Jesus we have eternal life if we have faith in him. Number two, it means that even if you have no other family around, you have a family in the church. And number three, it means that Christians need to expand our definition of family. And in fact, if number two is true, that if you have no other family, you have a family in the church, that point is predicated on whether we get number three right. Something I saw this week um, was really interesting. It actually could have turned into a huge political dumpster fire uh, because it was on Twitter and it, it was about abortion. Uh, but it ended up being really a great conversation. So it started out, there was a, a woman who was pro-choice responding to some of the abortion bills that have been signed in, in some of the states. And so she tweeted this out, presumably to friends. And I don't know, I don't even know who she is. I don't know if she's famous. She ended up getting like 13,000 replies. Um, so she must be someone, I guess. But this is what she tweeted out. She said, dear pro-life friends, what have you personally done to support lower-income single mothers? I'll wait. So she was a little snarky there at the end. But the response was absolutely beautiful. Like I said, 13,000 replies, and, and this, is, this is what they were like. This is uh, a, a few indications of the tone of the whole thing. My mom started a pregnancy center, and I, did, and I did volunteer work there from age of zero to 18 when I left for college. When I was two, my parents took in a pregnant high school student, paid all her medical bills. She still comes to visit and reminds us that I inspired her not to abort. Here's another one. I've taken in a single mother and her two children when her power was cut off in winter. When her car was taken, we gave her ours. I've given to charity off and on for years, donated clothing and school supplies to underprivileged kids. Here's another one, donated a well-working car to a pregnancy support center, which was given to a single mom who chose life. Another one, I had a single mother friend who I took into my home. We helped her daughter into, get into a decent school, introduced her to a caring Christian community. Then all of us helped her establish a home, furnish it, stock the kitchen, and find work. Uh, another one, I adopted one and took in three foster kids who are now staying permanently in addition to my six natural children. Another one, yeah, we're foster parents and adopted our youngest to add to the three we already had. Now, of course, there were some uncalled for snarky comments and things like that, okay? But the vast majority of responses were this, one after another, after another, after another. And, and it was really cool because the gal who made the original message was really gracious in her reply, and she said, it's so good to see all of these responses. It's so good to see all of the things that people are doing to help these single moms. Thank you for what you do. I just wish the government did more. Okay? That was the response. Okay? But do you see what happened there? Do you see what happened? These are people who view family not just as a fragile thing to protect, but as the potential source of human flourishing. That's what church as family means. Yes, of course, biological families are critical, and they're a part of, of the larger church family. In fact, they can help to support in, in, in smaller ways the church itself. But the church family can do so much more. And there is no reason why anyone in this church should feel alone regardless 
of whether they have biological family around or not. We should never use our family as an excuse not to serve or not to look out for other people. On the, uh, on the back of your bulletin, <clears throat> I have, and I don't know if I put these on the screen. I don't think I did. But I've got some questions for further reflection because this is not something that, you know, you just take lightly or you just think about and then, you know, you go. It actually requires us to change how we think, to change how we think about what family is. And so I just want you to take some time and to think about some of these questions. In what ways has my family of origin shaped me, whether it's good or bad? In what ways have I used my family as an excuse not to get involved? Or on the other side of it, how have I viewed my family as a source of flourishing for others? Four, who in this church could use family right now? And then number five is just maybe a call for you guys to say, you know, maybe there are some ways that the church can make involvement more conducive to your family? Are there some things that we can adjust? Are there some things that we can change about how we do ministry that would make it easier, that would support you guys in having your family be a source of life for people both inside the church and outside the church? See, the gospel of marriage and family values family, but really what it does is it values my family. And what I want you to do today is I want you to expand that definition and say, yes, families are important, families are critical, families are, are God-given ways for us to, to work for the good of society. But we have to start thinking differently about them, okay? That they are tools to, you know, to raise our kids and disciple them, but also to support the work of the kingdom. And I think when we can do that, when as a church we can start to get that right, imagine how much more impact we have for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we want to give you praise today. And we want to give you thanks for our families. And like I said, for many of us, our family is a, a great source of, of joy and comfort and hope. And we just want to give you thanks for that, give you praise for that. But Lord, I also want to pray for those today for whom family is not a source of joy and comfort, but a source of guilt and hurt and un, um, unrealized dreams and sometimes even just plain agony. And Lord, I just pray that you would heal their hurts. I pray that that you would help them to be able to see that you have, through Jesus Christ, created a new kind of family. And Lord, no matter what our family, our biological family is like, Lord, I pray that all of us who call ourselves Christians, who call ourselves followers of Jesus, would also see ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we as a church could operate as a family that isn't in, ingrown, Okay, but that we look out and we say, who else can we bring into this family? Lord, I pray that that would be our, our passion, that that would be our desire as we seek to do the best we can with our families. 
whether we are single, whether we're a couple with no kids, a family who's currently raising kids, empty nesters, retired, you know, whatever it is, whatever our current family state is, Lord, I pray that we would see it as an opportunity to work for your kingdom. Thank you so much that you are a father who loves us, who has saved us, and who calls us to be family to each other. We just thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.